0: Welcome to Thinking Across Latitudes, the podcast that explores the multifaceted relationship between the regions on both sides of the Mediterranean and the Atlantic. I'm your host, Ermin Sam, and in today's episode, we delve into the topic of climate change and security in the Sahel. You've probably heard the concept of climate security in the past few years, and the reason why we started to talk about security on top of climate change is because this policy and political framework has been adopted by many international actors across the world. It looks at climate change through a different lens than the environmental approach and focuses on the impact of climate on peace and security and vice versa. Like most definitions, it's pretty hard to find one that fits all situations and perspectives. But with this new framework, we started to see more focus on how climate change can induce competition among societies, but also the weaponization on natural resources and the immediate social impacts it has on vulnerable communities. Whilst researching for initiatives that are implemented to combat climate insecurity, we discovered an African-led initiative that aims to mitigate and adapt to the impacts of climate change in Africa by making its communities more secure through active cooperation. The Great Green Wall of Africa. Essentially, the idea behind this project is to have a long strip of trees that cross the Sahara Desert from the Atlantic Ocean to the Red Sea to slow down, if not to stop, the expansion of the Sahara Desert. So this would mean a wall of trees 8,000 kilometers long and 15 kilometers wide going through 11 countries of the African continent.
1: Well, that was initially 11 countries, and these are Burkina Faso, Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, Nigeria, Senegal, Sudan, Chad, and just recently Somalia. So it is now 12 countries, even though it started with 11 countries. So the idea of the biological corridor along the southern border of the Sahara is seen as a means of, halting the progression of the Sahara Desert um, by protecting water resources, which has been drained up for decades. Like I mentioned earlier, the the shrinking of the Lake Chad region, right? So restoring habitats for biodiversity, ensuring the preservation of natural resources, reducing poverty, and empowering the people living within and near the Great Green Wall Corridor. So this initiative um, involves um, a lot of sectors, right? It gets its support from the African Union, the United Nations, the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and several non governmental organizations. And then these partners also provide financial, technical, and logistical assistance to help implement the Great Green World project in the Sahel.
0: That was Fatima Aliyu Magaji, climate activist and founder of Farm for Future. She's now also the youth champion of the Nigerian Great Green Wall initiative. The Great Green Wall is an example of strategies to respond to climate insecurity in Africa. But before getting into the details of such projects, it's important to understand the core of today's topic, climate security, and why it matters to look at climate change under this framework. For that, we discussed with Javier Cantero,
2: a Spanish diplomat based in D.C. I think everything is connected, but really the angle on security uh, adds to the climate change policy two things. You no, know? On the one hand, I think it's uh, including the need or emphasising on the need to focus more attention on the adaptation um, leg of the Paris Agreement, that is to say, on how we adapt to our, our ever-warming planet, and on the other hand, on how we can integrate climate in the programming for stabilization uh, policies, in which uh, we are all uh, very much uh, engaged for, as they are um, one of the most important uh, policies that we have to uh, try to uh, reduce manage uh, resolve conflicts uh, around the world so if you look at for example the the juxtaposition between or the, or the convergence between climate exposed countries and countries that are prone to conflict, you will be astonished so we have to be very um um aware of this fact that while we have to manage this or we have to help to manage those conflicts. We have to be aware of the uh, exacerbation factor that climate change would push or would uh, add to those conflicts and the instability. And we have to adapt to that and we have to integrate and prevent those conflicts to exacerbate as a result. And I think we are now in the position to say that Uh, We have agreed, um, the large majority of, of the countries in the international community, that there is a need to foster this angle, climate and security. But we have the challenge to make it more operational. And we have the challenge also to be more active on the adaptation actions that are required in order to adapt to the politics of a warming planet. And really, that conversation is stepping up, is also producing a campus of knowledge, of understanding, and also an increasing attention to the toolbox that we have to have in order to cope with the effects of climate change also in terms of human security. And in more tangible terms, what are some examples of where climate
0: change means security? Indirectly impacts communities around the world?
2: Well, there, there are so many. I mean, we have seen when in, in Ukraine the destruction of the dam has uh, shown the weaponization of water uh, so dramatically. Uh, we have seen also this in the upcoming years, you know, uh, the last years, uh, the control of water up the Nile between Ethiopia and Egypt and Sudan is another example of this friction uh, and the weaponization of of water. And this is the reason why, for example, the US published uh, last year, the global water strategy to anticipate and reduce conflict and fragility related to water. But really you're asking for examples. And I think you have two very good uh, examples of how um, climate security threats are affecting uh, really uh, the situation in, for example, the Sahel countries on the Horn of Africa with increasing droughts that are a vicious circle that is really uh, contaminating the, their social tissue and is affecting uh, the scarcity and competition of of the water with the intercommunal conflicts for its use. But also in the U.S., Uh, You know, it's estimated that 3 million people migrated as a result of climate change in 2021-2022. From the examples
0: Javier gave us, we can see that this new framework has no borders and affects everyone. So who in the international community has set this focus in their climate strategies?
2: I think it was in 2021 at the UN Security Council in Niger and Ireland presented a draft resolution on the uh, link between climate and security. And it was co-sponsored by 113 uh, countries, member states of the United Nations. Uh, that was the second largest sponsorship in the history of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, However, it it didn't pass because uh, the Russian Federation vetoed it, and China abstained, and India also uh, voted against it. So 12 uh, says yes, uh, two no's and, and one abstention.
1: Ireland and Niger are extremely disappointed that the Security Council today failed to adopt the resolution on climate and security. We know very well that this resolution would have been a historic and an important, not to mention necessary move for the Council at a critical point in time. This resolution is about looking at the Security Council's role in our current world. Research and evidence on the ground show clearly that climate change is increasing insecurity and instability. This Council will never live up to its mandate for international peace and security if it does not adapt.
2: But I think that uh, moment showed the interest of both countries in the north and the south of this uh, topic, no? I think uh, if you um, consider this, uh, uh, well, let's say, picture of the international community, supporting a uh, uh, perspective on on that uh, climate and security I think you will be really um, uh, clear on, on the fact that this is an issue that interests both both uh, parts of the world now you are asking about the who are the the, the ones that are uh, putting more effort and I think the they the forefront you, you have, of course, the transatlantic partners. I mean, the G7, for example, under the uh, presidency of Germany, uh, approved a very bold uh, roadmap to put this at the heart of the G7 uh, agenda. The U.S. has been uh, making efforts not only for the State Department, the uh, uh, Department of Defense, uh, USID, and many other uh, uh, federal agents to to put climate on on their uh, focus, and they have produced very interesting uh, initiatives, uh, like for example the prepare uh, the presidential plan to uh, foster adaptation in in many countries that has a component on security. We have seen also the European Union really making a lot of efforts uh, in the last five four five or four years regarding climate security. And the UN is it's leading this effort as well. But many other organizations, international organizations within the system are integrating uh, climate security uh, perspectives in their analysis and planning. I'm thinking of World Bank, for example, the OSCE, um, of course, the International Monetary Fund, They are also concerned uh, about uh, this. The the African Union uh, is following this uh, very closely, the ECOWAS. Uh, And I think if you look at the involvement of civil society organizations and and research institutions, um, there are a couple of very interesting initiatives. Weathering Risks, for example, which is a platform that is multi-stakeholder uh, with, you know, coming from from the public uh, sector and also from the private and, and civil society organizations, or even the partnership on, on, on water that has been launched by the United States. So there is a whole range of organizations that are trying to set the frameworks and provide themselves with the tools to, to deal with uh, increasing climate security and um, make this index no, of this climate insecurity a much more refined uh, and well-designed um, framework, theoretical framework to operate in the coming year. So uh, work is on the, on the, on the way uh, and we are seeing uh, a lot of steps here and there and, and I think that is really showing the path uh, in the coming years to, to integrate this perspective in the actions and activities in of many actors, either national or international. And even a neutral country like Switzerland that uh, took uh, its first membership at the UN Security Council last year included climate security in their four priority uh, areas, thematic priorities. So I think there is a lot of interest and, and a lot of thinking into it. and 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 I think that is good news for us. To see in which regions
0: of the world the link between climate and insecurity is most felt, it's interesting to take a look at the Intelligence Council map. This map, identifies 11 countries and two regions, so Central Africa and small Pacific island states, as highly vulnerable to climate change. The Sahel and parts of the southern Atlantic coast of Africa are also marked as most vulnerable. In these regions, climate change is anticipated to raise social, political and geopolitical risks, but also community tensions. And it's also expected to enhance the likelihood of political instability in the medium to long term. We spent some time with Atahir Maiga, the Food and Agriculture Organization, so FAO representative to Ivory Coast, who was previously posted in Niger. And he explained to us the main drivers of conflict and instability in the Sahel region and how those are intertwined with climate change and environmental degradation.
3: I think in the Sahel, I would say, you know, the the pressure on the natural resources is, a, you know, an important source of tension because, uh, you know, population is growing, and the need for access to natural resources, uh, you know, is also growing with population grow, and and the natural resources also are depleting, because, for instance, uh, in the Sahel. You have a lot of conflict between uh, those who do agricultural and those who do livestock. For instance, uh, there is less and less water, so they all those two all need water. And also, uh, sometimes when uh, people grow crops, if animals don't have uh, grass, uh, you know, to feed, they can come and encroach on agricultural, you know, spaces, and this generate conflict. So. I would say the pressure on uh, the natural resources uh, is an important, uh, you know, dimension in that respect. But uh, I think we cannot also, you know, uh, undermine the governance. I would say because uh, you know, more and more we see in the Sahel that uh, you know there is a lot of unrest in terms of uh, political stability. Because if you don't have political stability it's very difficult to implement policies that can mitigate climate change impact and so on. So those are, uh, I would say, uh, combined effects, uh, you know, uh, malgovernance, uh, instability, uh, and also poverty, because poverty is an important driver also. You know, if you are poor, you don't have access you know, to a lot of uh, mitigation resources that you can have.
0: The FAO is a specialized agency of the United Nations that works to achieve food security and defeat hunger. In the Sahel, like around the world, it leads efforts to make sure that people from at-risk communities and people in zones of conflict receive food. Atahair explains how climate security measures are intricate to the work of the FAO and what initiatives they support to mitigate and adapt to climate change to complete their mission.
3: Okay, for me, uh, you know, if I look at the climate security issue, the challenges that we have is, uh, I think there is a need to change paradigm. Because, uh, you know, what we see is that, uh, you know, a lot of time, you know, there is a a big emphasis on military aspects to address, you know, uh, climate security issues. You know, while we believe that, uh, you know, you need to really, you know, look at the government security side because there is a lot of insecurity in the Sahel and the response is uh, mainly military, you know, to see how to address, uh, you know, and unless you address it on a, I would say, holistic manner. Of course, the military side is important, but you have to look at really, and that's what FAO you know, is uh, pleading for is to really look at from the woman's side. You know, to see how really you can put emphasis on you know, availing water security, having water security, food security, which is uh, the mandate of FAO. So th- this is the shift of paradigm, and that's why we are also pleading a lot on the nexus approach. Nexus meaning you don't just look at one aspect, but you look at the you know the different uh, you know. Political, uh, you know, military, but also developmental. Because in the Sahel, there is a lot of uh, resources devoted to humanitarian intervention. You know, whereby there is a crisis, you flow money, you solve, uh, you know, you feed people, you bring food and so on. But next year the same issue comes again. So we are saying, as FAO, we need to have a nexus approach, whereby you address the humanitarian aspect, because it's important, you know? When people are starving, you have to bring them food and so on. But in the same token, you have to think of the medium to long-term aspect by, you know, uh, looking at how to address on a long, longer-term basis those issues, you know, for instance, and that's what FAO is really bringing, you know, by uh, empowering the people. Uh, so the women-centered approach, empowers empower the people to address you know, the challenges uh, around them, teaching them good, uh, good practices, what has worked, uh, you know, well in some other parts of the world. You know, so those are really, you know, the different aspects that FAO uh, brings on the table, uh, you know, in terms of to address those challenges. So for me, a big challenge is really how you change the paradigm, you know.
0: Following that, what are some of the key policies or tools that the FAO is implementing to address climate security in the Sahel?
3: Okay, uh, FAO does a lot of uh, actions because our mandate is quite wide. You know, we FAO we we try to really see how we can raise production and productivity either in agriculture, livestock, fisheries, and so on. So what we do. Uh, I would say, in the Sahel, an important dimension is really to see how we can lessen, you know, uh, community conflicts, the conflicts on resources, access to resources. So we do that by, uh, you know, develop, we have developed uh, certain tools, you know, that make communities talk to each other, you know, and also understand that, you know this is a, a, a shared resource that uh, they have to really see how to use them you know uh, I would say uh, more reasonably because uh, you see uh, the woman impact on uh, a lot of this aspect is important because for instance in the Sahel, uh, you will, as you will you will know uh, de- in desertification, uh, is has been mainly the consequence of a uh, 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 man-made impact because people have cut uh, trees, you know, to go either you know to build houses or uh, you know to produce energy, and this has been an impact of that. So you have to teach people how to live with their natural environment. So FAO spend a lot of time in educating communities on how to better use the natural resources that is their livelihood. So, in that respect, we develop uh, a number of uh, projects in that respect that uh, you know, work on the conflict resolution at the community level. And in that, we really also put a lot of emphasis on the role of women because they are important, uh, I would say, a source of uh, learning. Because you see, if you look at the, the food security side, women are the ones that are really are the central piece in the production of food. Because uh, yeah, they have an important role in agriculture, even in the livestock. And the thing is, what when women are involved, they care for the family. They are the ones that feed uh, the children, and, and also, and they, they, seem, they, they, they appear to have uh, you know, more, uh, I would say, uh, impact on their community. So, and they, they are involved because women are the, the ones that are most involved in uh, uh, livelihood uh, agricultural practices. So that's why in FAO, we have a gender policy. So those policies are embedded on all the activities that we undertake to make sure that uh, women have access. Because the problem is sometimes, despite the role that they have, they don't have all the power to access the resources to produce. Because if, if they have to lend uh, money to do agriculture, in general, uh, you know, these are areas where men have more credits than women. So we have to empower. If we empower the women, then the, the multiplication effect is greater. So that's why FAO really put uh, as a central piece, you know, gender equity and equality in our policies, so that policies treat men uh, and saying this, um, uh, the role of men is important. But we are saying that uh, you know women should be having equal kind of uh, uh, access and, uh, to to the productive resources.
0: We also asked Atahir who the FAO works and communicates with to set priorities and actions to combat climate insecurity in the Sahel and how these are implemented through initiatives that reach the communities they are geared for.
3: Okay, yeah, uh, our, all, all our interventions, okay, we have different interventions because some of the interventions are more at the policy and strategic level whereby we support the national government to develop uh, sound policies and strategies so this is, to me, is at a more macro level, but uh, the majority of what we do happen at the community level. So we identify, you know, issues. You know, we talk to people at the ground level, you know, to to understand what are their main problems. We we listen to them. We don't. We just don't come to see No, to see this is your problem. This is our solution. No, we talk to them to understand. What are their, uh, you know, challenges they are facing? What are the aspirations they have? And then from that, we develop a pro- project proposal to assist them in that regard. So, uh, and then FAO is a technical agency, which means that uh, some, many times we need also you know, to mobilize financial resources from donors to implement uh, those kinds of projects. And what I what, what I was meaning by you know earlier when I was mentioning the uh, shift of paradigm is on many instances you know even the funding mechanism you know need to be questioned sometimes because you can see that sometimes it's easier to raise you know resources for when an emergency happens you know than if you want to raise uh, resources. For a developmental project and a proposal, you know, so this means even at the funding level, there has to be some shift of paradigm. But of course, coming straight to what uh, you are uh, mentioning, the question. So we deal with the communities, we sit with them, understand their issues, and and then from that, with our technical expertise, we try to bring solution to their problem. In terms of initiatives that we have, we implement a number of uh, project and program at the country level. As I mentioned earlier, for instance, we implement some uh, climate-smart agricultural projects. Uh, you know, for instance, in the Sahel, there is a, an initiative called the Great Green Wall initiative, which is uh, you know. Uh, undergoing right now, uh, it's an African Union initiative per se, but FAO does bring uh, technical expertise because we are a, a technical agency, so we bring technical expertise in supporting s- such kind of initiative that are, are uh, you know tools to fight uh, you know for adaptation to climate change.
0: When we began this episode, we introduced the initiative of the Great Green Wall of Africa, the reforestation African-led initiative. That aims to limit the expansion of the Sahara Desert and crosses 12 countries of Africa, starting at the Atlantic Ocean and going to the Red Sea. With a bit of digging, we fell on Fatima, one of the first youth champions of the Nigerian National Agency for the Great Green Wall of Africa. With her input, we got to know more about how this project operates and what her role as a youth ambassador entails for the initiative.
1: So to give you a bit of background, I was one of two young people who were selected to represent Nigeria at the Pan-African Agency for the Great Green Wall's first Green Youth Caravan last year. And we traveled uh, 3,000 kilometers from Dakar in Senegal to Nouakchott in Mauritania to Mali. And uh, We didn't just travel to these capital cities. We traveled to several communities along the Great Green Wall Corridor. Um, so... Just, uh, you know, observing, learning, and taking in some of the best practices that these countries have been deploying in achieving the Great Blue World Initiative. So, like I mentioned, um, we traveled, um, it was sort of uh, approximately 3,000 kilometers, and um, the Pan African Agency for the Great Blue Wall has its headquarters in Mauritania. So, um, as pioneer youth champions for the agency, um, after we returned from the caravan, we were we then worked on translating some of our experiences, what we had seen from all these countries, because basically the whole point of the caravan is to increase communication and also to share best practices and to see what these countries are up to in India within their own local context. So we worked about we worked um, around translating some of these experiences from the caravan, and then we developed the NHGw Youth Volunteers Program. So anyway, this is how we became. Um, the the youth champions. And because, you know, we're the first youth champions, there's a lot of like back and forth in learning and trying to figure out what our roles until, you know, not trying to do anybody else's job, you know, and just identifying where young people from the frontline states um, in Nigeria can um, help the agency achieve her mandate because in Nigeria, the National Agency for the Great Green World operates along level frontline states, which are the country's and so you know, getting the young people from these communities to to buy into this project and to be involved in it. So um, with that, there's a little bit of groundwork, you know, in terms of building their capacities as well. So what we we, we envision that when the program takes off fully, there will be um there will be five key activities, which is um afforestation and reforestation, jobs and livelihood and enhancement, capacity building. Alternative energy sources because as we planting trees, you need to provide alternatives for people to, you know, um, um, to heat their food, to cook their food, and so on, without cutting these trees down. And then public enlightenment, so you know, and um, community engagement and stuff like that. So there is not really there's none there's, no, there's no policy recommendation at this point. where well, maybe future um youth champions would do that, but for now, it's mostly just groundwork, and we're also dabbling in communications as well.
0: The project aims to regreen the Sahel region. But there's been little progress in building the Great Green Wall since its conception, understandably so, given the complexity of developing such a large scale project, bridging dozens of countries. To date, only 18% of the total targeted 100 million hectares by 2030 has been reached. We asked Fatima to assess the progress of the projects, to understand what is obstructing its development, and to know if a new deadline has been set.
1: Okay, so I cannot say uh, if there is a completion date. Not There's none that I'm aware of. Um, the completion date for the Great School World is not set in stone. Um, and I think it's important to know that the Great School World is a long-term and complex initiative that involves multiple countries, diverse ecosystems, and a wide range of stakeholders. So the timeline for its full development depends on several factors like funding availability, the pace of the implementation, and the capacity of these participating countries. So the challenges definitely can be funding shortfalls You know, This project requires um, financial, substantial financial resources to achieve its goals. And then again, um, environmental and climatic factors. The Sahel region is a harsh climate including frequent droughts so even the survival and growth of newly planted trees and vegetation poses challenges to the project's success and then I said I, I mentioned earlier to the security concerns some of the areas where the green green world is being implemented are affected by security challenges like terrorism and armed conflict so these issues can um, disrupt project activities and pose, pose risks to even the workers.
0: On the question of funding. The project requires around $33 billion to fund itself. This number has not been fundraised yet due to little follow-through, delays and lack of coordination between the different stakeholders. During the fourth One Planet Summit held in Paris in 2021, French President Emmanuel Macron and other world leaders announced the Great Green Wall Accelerator. This is an additional initiative that would help speed up the building of the wall and pledged to contribute almost 16 billion euros by 2025 to the countries linked to the Great Green Wall. Since the beginning of 2023, these countries have already received around 2 billion euros of that pledge. Although the project is still in its grassroots stages, Fatima let us in on a few of the positive impacts that have come from the first stages of the Great Green Wall, and what community best practices she witnessed during her time spent with the caravan.
1: The GGW is a long-term endeavor, but there have been notable achievements and benefits observed in, in various regions. Um, in certain areas, um, tree planting efforts and land restoration activities have led to increased vegetation cover. This has helped combat desertification and land degradation, making previously barren areas more productive. Um, reforestation and sustainable land practices have contributed, contributed to enhanced Soil fertility, and this has led to increased agricultural productivity and improved livelihoods for local communities. I can tell you for a fact that I, um, Mauritania is one of the uh, one of the countries uh, facing the, um, the the most severe impacts of um, desertification. And it was it was um, it was inspiring to see how they were able to restore some land, to, you know, grow food. We even saw the food that they were growing. And they were selling them. They had like several um, integrated farms. So definitely, there's a, there's a like um, there's a huge land restoration um, project going. So there are several wins for people who live in these communities. And then um, tree planting and agroforestry um, have generated income and livelihoods for several communities. Then uh, climate resilience as well. Trees and vegetation help to regulate local climates and and uh, reduce the risk of droughts and provide natural barriers against sandstorms. Sand um, the Great Green Wall has contributed to biodiversity conservation by creating habitats for wildlife, and the initiative has also encouraged community involvement and ownership of land restoration projects. Local communities are often engaged in the implementation of these projects. and in areas where land restoration has been successful, food security has also improved. So, more resilient and diverse agricultural practices can lead to increased food production and reduce um, dependency on rain fed agriculture. So, improved um, soil fertility, increased vegetation cover, economic opportunities, climate resilience, biodiversity conservation, community involvement, and food security are some of the positive impacts so far.
0: The week before interview, Fatima had the opportunity to go to the African Climate Summit that took place in Nairobi, Kenya from the 4th to the 8th of September. This summit holds a special meaning as it is the first climate summit to focus on Africa. It was attended by multiple African heads of states and other world leaders, the Secretary-General of the United Nations Antonio Guterres and President of the European Commission Ursula von der Leyen were also present, as well as civil society organizations and other relevant stakeholders the discussions focused on climate action linked to economic development and financing, as well as the green growth agenda for Africa. Although only 18 African heads of states were present, it resulted in the Nairobi Declaration, a call to action set in 11 points, proclaiming the unified stance of African states on climate action in preparation for the 28th United Nations Climate Change Conference, the COP28. So since Fatima was there in person, she shared with us her take on this inaugural African Climate Summit.
1: So I think that the inaugural Africa Climate Summit did a good job of bringing together the relevant stakeholders um, to form Africa's position as we head to the climate negotiations later this year in Dubai. So um, commitments were made by governments, private sector, um, banks, and you know, and other organizations. That set out concrete plans to make this um, the needed change to in a in a move towards net zero, um, and this was how the Nairobi Declaration was born. And there was a lot of talk about um, Africa Carbon Markets Initiative. You know, so, uh, some of these commitments were not so new. Um, I would have liked to see more emphasis on um climate adaptation and resilience, which, in my opinion is what Africa needs the most uh, than more talks of um, Africa carbon markets.
0: We also turned to Atahir to see if he shared the views of Fatima on the relevance of multilateral gatherings on climate action and the perspectives from Africa on these summits.
3: It's very important that these gatherings are happening because they try to address issues. But uh, what I can say is, in general, at least from the Sahelian perspective, you know the the resentment is that uh, after those big meetings uh, at the global level, uh, you know, um, there is no follow up, ad- ad- adequate follow up to the resolutions, because as if you go back to the COP, you can see that uh, because uh, you know the developing countries are saying they are not the most responsible for climate change impacts.
0: Javier Cantero also provided us with thoughts on the disparities in the implications of climate change, as well as the attempts to address climate insecurity in northern and southern nations. He notices how these inequalities are addressed in international summits
2: and how they might eventually push for improved collaboration. It's not a southern-related issue. I mean, it's, it's an issue that affects all of us, north, south, east and west. Uh, the southern countries, however, are more affected, even though they did not generate this problem in the first place. Um, really, is is a question of climate justice somehow to take them into account, as they are the most exposed but the, the least responsible. So, uh, even even to give you one one example, forty eight African countries count less than uh, 1% of the global emissions, I mean, um, of carbon uh, gases. So really the the Southern countries are um, here um, in the line and they have a lot to say. Um, As I referred with Niger, I mean, and the sponsorship of of the UN Security Council draft resolution that didn't pass, there is a, a lot of interest but there is also uh, an interest of um, others to focus on specific topics. No? I remember at the COP27 when, the, when this uh, historic loss and damage fund was created, something that has to be also uh, defined in the upcoming 20, the 28 COP in Dubai. But I remember that this was one of the things no, that the developing countries wanted to to focus no, on the financing uh, aspect of the climate change policy this week particularly they are going to have um, in paris uh, a meeting on 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 the financing of, of this uh, climate challenge and, and this this climate crisis how we can better uh, use the the tools so i think there is a a big international effort that binds and that unites the North and the South and the South and the North. And, and you know, this idea of the swing states uh, that I think it comes to, to a lot of sense, no, and makes a lot of sense in this regard, because you have countries that are more, uh, well, uh, open to discuss issues, uh, like climate change, with uh, the Northern countries and others, of course. There are also partners that are more eager to include and integrate the climate change uh, agenda into their national policies. But I think there is a space there to bridge the gap and and really to to get together on a a positive agenda that makes sense for Southern and Northern countries. Uh, I think we need to put that into the, on the table, I mean, to put that topic as one of the areas where we can cooperate. Finally, when considering the future priorities of
0: the FAO and other transatlantic actors in addressing climate security on the world scene, Javier, Fatima and Ataher all gave us their views on the key areas where further collaboration and support are needed to improve the approach of climate actions to build a stronger durable climate secure world. International
3: collaboration need to be strengthened because this issue needs everybody to come together. You know, we all have some role to play. So this is a a key message. One, another one is also, we have to consider climate change issues beyond our national borders, which means we have to look at this, you know, of course, At the local level, national level, regional level, and international level, you know, because those uh, issues are interconnected, you know. What you do in your region affects other regions, what you do in your continent affects other countries. So, international collaboration, I think, is important. And we are saying also we have to put emphasis on uh, using science because we know that uh, there are a number of uh, scientific approaches i mentioned earlier climate smart agriculture you know uh, and and so on uh, so we have to use science and innovation to address climate related issues uh, so those are really you know and also we have to uh, avail adequate means financial means you know to address uh, you know this global issue you know so for me, in, in, in short, those are the key messages. And FAO, in our in the current FAO strategic framework, we put all of this around what we call the four betters, which means better production, better nutrition, better environment, and better life, leaving no one behind. This is really the key message that FAO is giving the present case.
2: Well, I think um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. We have to be uh, aware of the possible scenarios and we have to prepare for that and prevent uh, the the worst case scenarios to happen, of course, but we have to be hopeful. And and I believe, and I I really strongly uh, have the conviction that we can do the steps to be transformational in this area. I think uh, there is a huge uh, space to be explored and develop in the adaptation uh, uh, agenda. We have not taken sufficient attention to what is needed. That has to complement the efforts on the mitigation front. Those are the two main ideas in the Paris Agreement. And really, how can the transatlantic partnership uh, be a leader in this field? I think there is a big response to that.
1: So I think that these announcements can strengthen Africa's um, climate resilience. I mean, they are a pro- they are positive and crucial development in the global efforts to address climate change and its impacts. And some of these initiatives rep- um, represent a recognition of the um, how in- connect- interconnected these climate um, challenges are, and the shared responsibility of the international communities to to support vulnerable regions like Africa. Um, It's important to recognize that while these um, cooperation um, and announcements are a positive step, their effectiveness depends on the implementation and the follow-through. So concrete actions, accountability mechanisms, and monitoring of progress are essential to ensure that These promises made in these announcements translate into meaningful improvement in African climate resilience. I mean, because I mean, like there are there are a lot of um, pledges and there are a lot of commitments and there are a lot of um, you know back and forth about how how are these going to be um, implemented? How are you going to follow through? What are the concrete steps and actions that you're taking to implement what you say you're going to do? I think that's the most important.
0: And on these words, we conclude today's episode of Thinking Across Latitudes. We hope you enjoyed our third episode on climate change and security in the Sahel. Stay tuned for future episodes where we continue to delve into the dynamics of Southern-Transatlantic relations. If today's episode resonated with you, don't hesitate to leave a comment, subscribe to our podcast, and follow GMF's social media to receive updates on our work, events, and projects relevant to the wider Atlantic. Thank you for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for the next one on hunger and conflict in the Atlantic space. Take care.